Good to see everyone. We welcome the Upward uh, Volleyball group. That's always a lot of fun. I appreciate Jim Radford. If you know Jim Radford, he's just about as down to earth, just loves people, loves everything. So I love Jim Radford. First time I saw him, his hair was all messed up. He looked like Einstein. <laughs> but I don't know of anybody on the planet that loves people more than Jim. I love that guy, and so I appreciate him. So if you have a bulletin, inside the bulletin there are some sermon notes. I want to encourage you to get those out. And today, really, you have a lot of responsibility. So a lot of the notes are going to be up to you all uh, to write down. I'm just going to give you kind of a blank canvas in many ways and that you get to fill in. And I, I want to go on record to say, I think in my 43 years pastoring, I'm not sure I, I've ever spent more time working on a message than I have this one. I was up late many nights, up early, I spent so much time, and it was one of those messages, the more you got into the tabernacle in the Old Testament, the bigger it seemed to get. And I just, as people say, how, when do you finalize your message? Usually on Sunday morning when I run out of time, I got to get up and go. So I was up this morning, just making a couple changes here and there, and finally I ran out of time. I said, just got to go with this. So anyway, I just want to encourage you guys to really take time to do some further study of what we're going to talk about today. So as we're going through the book of Hebrews, again, one of the basic questions of the writer of Hebrews is Jesus enough? Because these readers were facing some really tough times. And again, they could have went back to Judaism, which was accepted by the Roman government. It would have been a lot less stressful. But the writer's saying, man, stay true to Jesus, keep your eyes on Jesus, and that literally Jesus is enough. And so in that time when you feel, and, and we're living in a crazy time right now, but I just want to tell you that Jesus is enough in our life. And so this verse we've kind of used as our theme verse for the book of Hebrews, and from the writer's own words, he says this, I call on you, brothers and sisters, listen patiently to this message of exhortation and encouragement I have written to you briefly. So by the writer's own words, he calls it a message of encouragement. You know, the older I get, the more I feel like I just want to encourage and preach grace. Because you get beat up enough out there in the world, the last thing you need is to come to church and get beat up. I think we need to encourage one another to stay faithful to Jesus. I love the book of Hebrews. And so the writer, in essence, was saying to these people who were facing difficult uh, days ahead, not to go back to the law, not to go back to Judaism, but to keep their eyes on Jesus and to keep moving forward. In essence, he was telling them to burn all the bridges behind and only go forward. And I want to encourage you as well to never think about retreating, but always going forward. We've been talking about in the book of Hebrews the idea of a shadow. And so we've used different shadows. And last week, I introduced Bob's shadow. And so if you know Bob Caldwell, you know that something is always stuck to his hand. And that's his cell phone, all right? He's always on his cell phone, maybe 23 out of 24 hours. He may even sleep with it, I'm not sure. But I love Bob. And Bob may be talking to 15 different people at the same time, 
but he's always encouraging folks. He's always loving on folks. But he was uh, babysitting his daughter, Hannah, for a week, which would have been a lot of fun to be a fly on the wall. But he was, they were sitting on the couch watching a movie, him and his daughter, Hannah, some daddy-daughter time. And so as he was, they were watching a movie, of course, he was on the phone, and only a way that Hannah, if you know Hannah, just a sweetheart, Hannah looks over, looks down at his phone, looks up at him, looks down at his phone, and so Hannah says to her dad, Bob, you busy? And boy, the Holy Spirit could not have spoken more directly to Bob, because he knew Put the phone down and spend some time with your daughter, all right? And so last week, I challenged you guys to text Bob as often as you can. You busy. And so I, I texted him last night. I said, how many texts have you got this week? Because he was keeping track. He thought that was fun. You weren't bothering Bob. He got a big kick out of it. He was, he was hoping to set a Guinness World Record of the most texts in one week. And this is kind of a tribute to Hannah, by the way. So I texted him last night. How many texts have you got this week? 380 and still counting. So his phone was burned up this week by people texting, you busy. And by the way, if you didn't get a chance, it is not too late, all right? Just as the Lord leads, just feel free to text him, all right? And so again, the writer is saying in Hebrews 10.1 that the, the, uh, the law is a shadow of good things to come. And everything in the Old Testament is merely a shadow of of the substance of Christ. And so I love studying the Old Testament because when you're studying the Old Testament, you're studying the subject, the shadow of Christ. And every time you find a shadow, you know there's a substance. I mean, every shadow you see, there's some kind of substance. And so the writer's saying that the law, the old covenant was merely a shadow, but the substance is Christ. And so the book of Colossians also says, Paul says there, that don't let anybody judge you by food and drink and by festivals and Sabbaths, because all those things are merely a shadow, but the substance is Christ. And so the writers encourage them not to go back to the law, not to go back to the old covenant, but if you've got the real deal, if you've got the substance of Christ, why would you ever go back? And so the law, the prophets, the angels, they're all part of the shadow. Again, the shadow's not bad. The shadow's good. The shadow reminds you that there is a substance. And so every time you study the Old Testament, 100% of the time, it's always going to point you to Jesus. So you can never go wrong by studying the Old Testament. So I want to summarize chapter 7, chapter 8, and we're going to get into chapter 9. So chapter 7, if you remember, the writer just keeps talking about how superior Jesus is than all the Old Testament law, the covenant, the high priest. And so in chapter 7, it says Jesus is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And it goes on to say that Jesus' priesthood is greater than that of the Levitical priesthood. And they understood how important priests were because it was the priests that went into the temple to represent the people before God. So they knew how important the priests were. But the writer's saying that Jesus has a greater priesthood than the Levitical priesthood. And if you remember, we talked about Melchizedek in chapter 7. When I think about Melchizedek, I'll always think of a shooting star. Because Melchizedek, if you remember in Genesis chapter 14, he came out of nowhere, he disappeared, and like a shooting star, boom, disappeared for just a moment. And so this is my thought of Melchizedek. Boom, that's it. He came on the scene out of nowhere, he disappeared out of nowhere, and yet the Bible says, consider how great this man was. 
A matter of fact, a thousand years later, after he's mentioned in Genesis 14, the only time he's mentioned in the Genesis account, chapter 14, is when Abraham was coming back from the battle, and the Bible says that Melchizedek met Abraham. He had bread and wine. He blessed Abraham, and Abraham gave him a tithe. That's the only time he's mentioned, one time in the entire book of Genesis. But a thousand years later, when David was writing Psalms 110, he was writing about the coming Messiah, which was Jesus. So in Psalms 110, a thousand years after he appeared on earth, God gives David a word about Melchizedek. So as he's talking about the coming Messiah, he writes this. And by the way, I mentioned last week, Psalms 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. No other psalm is quoted more than Psalms 110. So David writes here in verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. He's talking about Jesus, the coming Messiah. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's the only other time he's mentioned in the entire Old Testament. Once in Genesis 14, once in Psalms 110. And yet the writer of Hebrews mentions him eight times. And so he's saying how much more superior the priesthood of Jesus is than that of the old. So in chapter 8, the writer continues to talk about the superiority of Christ. He says in chapter 8 that Jesus is a superior high priest. So the high priests in the Old Testament, they could only go in the presence of God once a year. The high priests in the Old Testament represented the people before God, but they had to offer up a sacrifice for themselves because they too were sinners before they offered up a sacrifice for the people. Number two in chapter eight, not only is he a better high priest, but he operates in a greater sanctuary. He operates in the true sanctuary in heaven. Now, if you remember, the writer of Hebrews says that Moses went up on the mount. See Moses going up on the mount there. And Moses got a chance to see the true tabernacle. By the way, I think, is there only two people that really got to go up into the third heaven? Paul in the New Testament was caught up into the third heaven. And Moses in the Old Testament, God took him up on Mount Sinai. He said, I want to give you a glimpse of the true sanctuary in heaven. And based on that, I want you to build a tabernacle. Can you imagine? Imagine how tough that would be. Can you imagine how hard it would be to see a glimpse of heaven and God said, I want you to build that on earth. It would nearly be impossible. Obviously, God gave him the grace. And so in chapters 25 of 40 of Exodus, it talks about the unbelievable detail of Moses building the tabernacle. I mean, it's almost boring. Every little detail of the tabernacle was built according to the word of God. Over and over and over, it says he built this as he was commanded. He built this according to the pattern. It took him 15 chapters to build the tabernacle. And finally, when it was done, in Exodus 40, verse 33, when it was done, it says, Moses finished the work. And the very next verse says, after he completed the tabernacle, the very next verse says, a cloud came down and covered the tabernacle, and the glory of God filled the tabernacle. The glory of God came down, and the Bible says Moses could not even go into the tabernacle because the glory of God filled the tabernacle. Now let me just say this. Back then, God dwelt in a tabernacle made with hands. Right now, there are no tabernacles, no earthly buildings where God dwells. We are the tabernacle of God. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And just like God filled the tabernacle in Exodus 40, God wants to fill each of us with his spirit. The more I studied the tabernacle, the more excited I got. 
and the more time. And one thing led to another. And it just, I just really found myself getting excited. So the purpose of the tabernacle. Why did God want them to build a tabernacle? The t- idea was God's and not man's. It says in Exodus 25, verse 8, when he was just getting ready to start the process, it says, God said, let them make me a sanctuary that I may what? Dwell among them. And so the idea of a sanctuary, why did Moses build a sanctuary? God said, I want you to build a sanctuary because I want to dwell among you. Now, if you ever study the children of Israel, they were a mess. You talk about a rough church. I mean, one to three million people, they were always complaining, always upset, wanting to go back to Egypt, wanting to kill the pastor. How many of you think that's bad? I mean, they were a rough group. But God says, I want to come down and dwell. Why would God want to come down and dwell with those people? Because he loves us. But the sin problem always kept God a little bit at a distance, all right? And so number three, not only is Jesus a superior high priest, not only does he operate in a better uh, sanctuary, but he operates under better promises. So everything about the new covenant is better than the old covenant. And so under the new covenant, the sin problem that was never taken care of by the thousands and thousands of sacrifices under the Old Testament, by that one sacrifice, the sin problem was forever taken care of. And when Jesus died, the sin problem was taken care of. He now has rose from the grave. He's our high priest in heaven. And we all have access to heaven, not because of who we are, not because of what church we go to, but because of that one death on the cross. God has opened a way for all of us to come into his presence. So Hebrews 8.13 ends this way. This is the end of chapter 8, which we finished last week. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. As he's writing to these readers, the temple is still standing in Jerusalem. They're still offering up sacrifices. The high priest is still going into the Holy of Holies once a year. But the writer says that soon the old is going to vanish away. Within a few years, Rome came down under Titus and literally flattened the temple. And from 70 AD forward, there has not been one sacrifice in the temple because there is no temple. And the old has passed away. They no longer need the sacrifice of animals because that one sacrifice of Christ took care of the sin problem. Man, the writer is just encouraging these people to understand who they are in Christ. And so if you have a Bible, you know, people say, why is there an Old Testament and a New Testament? Because there are two covenants in the Bible. There's the Old Covenant which the Old Testament talks about. And then there's the New Testament or the New Covenant. And so in the Old Testament, there are 39 books which primarily deal before Christ, but talk about Christ's coming. In the New Testament or the New Covenant, there's 27 books. So again, our Bible's made up of two covenants. By the way, somebody says, is there going to be a third covenant? No, because the second covenant took care of it. There is no other plan. The best plan already happened. So this is kind of a, 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 a look at a model of the tabernacle and the complex. By the way, this is actually Hermes' model, all right? This isn't a drone that flew over the, the uh, tabernacle and took a picture, all right? So he had this sitting on a table. I took a picture. And so the whole complex was about 150 foot long and about 75 foot wide. The whole complex, all right? And so... Inside of the tabernacle up there, outside, there was the brazen altar. 
and the brazen laver where they would uh, wash. But inside the tabernacle, I want to drop, there were four things, four pieces of furniture inside of the tabernacle. All right, there was the Ark of the Covenant, which was in the Holy of Holies. There was the golden lampstand. There was the altar of incense. And there was the table of showbread. Those four things, that was all that was inside. There were no chairs. The priests were not allowed to sit down because their ministry never finished. But Jesus, when he ascended into heaven, the Bible says he sat down at the right hand of the Father because his ministry was complete and he took care of the sin problem. All right, so I want to draw in. You say, why the layout? Why was it so specific that everything be laid out like God showed him? Because everything points to Christ. If you were to outline all of these things, it would be in the perfect shape of a cross because everything in the tabernacle pointed to Jesus. And the more you study the tabernacle, the more facts you know about Jesus. That's why I love studying the tabernacle, because it always gives us more information about Jesus. All right? So the tabernacle, God wanted it to be in the middle of the children of Israel. Now, personally, if I were God, I'd want to hang out by the pastors. I'd want to build by the pastors. I'm just kidding. God wanted to be right in the middle of the people. Why? Because he loves everybody. But even though he was right in the middle of everybody, there was still a separation. And the reason there was a separation is because of sin. So I'm going to drop in a few Levites here. How many of you recognize the priest? All right. Nobody asked me to do artwork. All right. So these are the priests. Now think about one to three million. Let's say two million children of Israel. They're all around the complex, but they're not allowed to go in. Only the Levites could go in. That was it. Only the high priest could go in the Holy of Holies. So they, had to, they were able to see, but they were not able to enter. And the reason they weren't able to enter was the sin problem. And here's why there was kind of a separation. The sin problem was never taken care of under the Old Covenant. Even though they offered up again hundreds of thousands of sacrifices, none of those sacrifices ever really took care of the sin problem. And so the people got to kind of be close to God, but they were always kept at a distance because of sin, because sin was never taken care of. All right, so Hebrews 9.8 says this, By this the Holy Spirit signifies that the way into the holy place, the true holy of holies, and the presence of God has not yet been disclosed. As long as the first or outer tabernacle is still standing, that is, as long as the Levitical system of worship remains a recognized institution. And so again, as long as the old was functioning, they could never ever find their way into God's presence. Goes on in verse 9 to say this, that it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect or a right standing relationship in regard to the conscience. Let me say this is really important. The writer is saying in the old covenant, through all of the hundreds and thousands of sacrifices, could never take care of the problem of the inner man. Could never deal with the conscience of man, the inner man. And so through all those sacrifices, it really couldn't take care of the sin problem. So let me just kind of focus in on the tent here, all right? And so if you, if you have your notes on the inside cover, I have this. All you got to do is draw arrows. I made it easy. You just draw arrows. So up here at the top, there's the tent of the meeting or the tabernacle. 
which only the Levites and only the high priest could go in the Holy of Holies. Then there was the brazen altar here, and that's where the sacrifices were made. By the way, the sacrifices were out in public view where all the children of Israel could watch the sacrifices. They were reminded of the need of shed blood. And when Jesus died, I believe he died on a public thoroughfare that everyone could see that he died in the open. He wanted the whole world to know that his sacrifice was important. So there was only one entrance into the complex, and that was through the eastern door. You could not come in any other way. There was only one way in, one way out. Does that kind of remind you of heaven when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life? There's only one way into heaven. That's through Jesus. And then over on the other side is the brazen labor, and that's where they would do ceremonial washings before the Levites would enter into the tabernacle. And so this was kind of an overall look at the complex. But I want to focus in on the tabernacle up there, or the tent of the meeting, because this is where God came down and met with man. All right, so in the tabernacle, and again, this is kind of a blown-up version here, it was covered with four layers. Now, inside of the tabernacle was absolutely beautiful. Had a lot of acacia wood overlaid with gold. I mean, the candlestick was made of solid gold. I mean, it was amazing on the inside. But that outside covering was really about as plain as you can imagine. It was actually made of a material, as I understand, that they made sandals out of. It could not have been more plain looking on the outside, but on the inside, it was incredibly special. I just want to remind you, on the outside, you may look at my outside and say, man, he's not much to look at. But the treasure is on the inside. Aren't you glad that God didn't show off? The outer covering could not have been more simple. And so let's take the covering off and kind of look at the inside here for just a minute. And so the measurements, this was the tabernacle that God, Almighty God, wanted to come down to earth to tabernacle with man. I just got to be honest with you. If I was God, I would have built something amazing. I would have built something bigger than St. Louis. But the God of the universe had the tabernacle made. Its entire dimensions were 45 foot long, 15 foot wide. And there were only two rooms inside of the tabernacle. The first one was the holy place, and it was 15 feet by 30 feet. And then inside of the other uh, room, the holy of holies, that was 15 foot square. It was 15 foot wide, 15 foot long, and 15 foot high. It was a cube. But only the high priest could go in the holy of holies, and that only once a year. And it was divided by a veil between the holy place and the Holy of Holies. Now, according to Josephus, the veil in the temple, which perhaps was different than the veil in the tabernacle, but he said the veil in the temple was four inches thick. But they say the one in the, in the tabernacle, I've had some people say it could be as, as thick as 18 inches. And by the way, there was no door in the veil. They couldn't just slip through and slip in. It was one solid piece of material. As a matter of fact, it was so strong, they said that horses pulling in opposite directions could not break the veil. And so the high priest, in order to get into the Holy of Holies, they literally had to pick up the veil and he had to crawl like a dog on his knees to get in. That's kind of a good way to get into God's presence, by the way, very humbly. And so this is kind of gives you the dimension. So let me kind of show you what that looks like. I've asked six people to help me. And so if you six will go to your blue dot, 
All right, I've got two up here, two in the back, and two. Mark doesn't have to go far. Come on up. I want to show you how big the tabernacle was. The God of this universe who wanted to make a tabernacle. And by the way, the tabernacle was made to tear down, reset up, because as they traveled, they, they would tear down, reset up. This is the size of the tabernacle right here, as close as David I could measure. So right up here, the 15-foot cube, this would be the Holy of Holies. That's all the bigger it was. And going back, the entire tabernacle was 45 feet long, 15 foot wide. So the holy place would be out there, 15 by 30. I just want to get you a vision. It's not that big. Several tabernacles could go inside of this room. It was not a big building. But everything was made specifically according to what Moses saw in heaven. So before you guys sit down, one more slide here. So let's kind of talk about what was in the tabernacle. Because again, no one could go in except the Levites. No one could go in the Holy of Holies except the high priest once a year. So they didn't get to see. Can you imagine living that close to God and never being able to see inside the tabernacle? I probably would have been zapped because I was that kid that would have went and looked. But again, there was a distance. So inside of the Holy of Holies, there was just one piece of furniture, and that was the Ark of the Covenant. And according to the Bible, in Hebrews 9, there were three things inside of the Ark of the Covenant. There was the golden pot of manna, which represented God's provision. By the way, don't you love in John 6 where Jesus said, I am the true bread which came down from heaven. That pot of manna reminds us that God made the ultimate provision and given us Jesus. Then there was Aaron's rod that budded. This is a really great story. If you go back to Numbers chapter 17, you can look it up later. But in Numbers 17, the people were grumbling and complaining why Aaron got to be high priest. Why does he get to be high priest? I want to be high priest. They were grumbling. Can you imagine God's people grumbling? Oh, yeah. And so they were grumbling. I want to be high priest. Why does Aaron get to be high priest? So Moses said, I'll tell you what. I'm going to put uh, Aaron's rod, which was just a stick, a dead wood. And I want to put a rod from all the leaders of all the tribes. We're going to put them in the tabernacle. And the next day, whichever rod buds, that's the one that God chose to be high priest. So they gathered up all these rods. Aaron put his rod in there, put his name on it. It was just a dead piece of wood. But the next day when they went into the tabernacle, guess which rod budded? Aaron's. And it was that rod that was put into the Ark of the Covenant and also the Ten Commandments. So that was the only three things inside the Ark. On the top of the Ark is what we call the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was just solid gold. And there was two cherubim whose wings spanned it over the mercy seat. And this is where the high priest would drop those blood on top of the mercy seat. And outside of that, inside of the holy place, there were three pieces of furniture. I'm not sure furniture is the right word, but there were three pieces. There was the golden lampstand. And by the way, I don't know exactly what it looked like, but this lampstand right here is the exact lampstand that the uh, institute, the temple institute in Israel has made for the next temple. If you go to Israel, get to go through the Temple Institute, they are making all of the, the devices for the new temple that's going to be made before Jesus comes back. And so this is the actual 
golden lampstand that they made for the new temple. All right, whether it looked exactly like that, don't know. It's made out of solid gold. But every day the priests were to make sure the light had enough oil. Every day that light, it was the only light that lit up the tabernacle. There was no other outside light. That was the only light inside of the tabernacle. And part of the daily requirements was to make sure it had enough oil and had the wicks and kept burning. By the way, the wicks of this particular lamp were made from the white linen cloth of the high priest. When they were soiled and no longer usable, they would shred them up and they would make wicks for the oil to burn. And so the priest, every day, made sure the light was burning inside of the tabernacle. On the other side of that was the table of showbread. And the table of showbread, there were 12 loaves of bread, one for each tribe of Israel. And they were to leave those out every day, and then every Sabbath, every seventh day, the priests were to replace the bread with 12 new loaves. Well, you say, what would they do with the old loaves? They ate them. They were probably a little bit stale, but they would eat the old loaves, put out new loaves every single week. And then there's the altar of incense there. And it's interesting that Hebrews almost seems to indicate that the altar of incense was inside of the Holy of Holies, but that would have made it impossible for the priest to go in because only the high priest could go in there. But I believe it was right outside by the veil and every day, morning and night, they would light incense that went up before God. And they say, obviously, they say that the smoke of the incense went through that veil and literally filled the Holy of Holies every day, 24 hours a day. So even though they could not go behind the veil, the smoke of the, of the incense did penetrate the veil and somehow filled the Holy of Holies. You say, why is that important? By the way, you know how they lit the fire for the altar of incense? They got coals from the brazen altar where animals were sacrificed, where their blood ran down and saturated those coals. They took coals from the brazen altar and they brought them in and that's how they fired this incense. So as the incense rose before God, it literally came from the very fire of the sacrifice. That's why when we pray to God, and by the way, this incense that filled the Holy of Holies, I believe is a picture of our prayers going up to God. The Bible says in Psalms 141.2, David says, my prayer as an incense ascends before you. I want you to know that God cares about your prayers. If nobody else cares, I just want you to know that your prayers have clout in heaven. God does not waste your prayers. And so our prayers ascend before God. And so it's kind of a picture, again, of what was going on on the inside. So you got, I want you one more look. I want you to see. These are the dimensions. If you're watching by video, it's going to be really hard. But again, this, this is the dimensions of the tabernacle right here. It really was not very big. All right, so you guys can sit down. Thank you so much for helping me out. So Hebrews 9.11 goes on to say, not only was the earthly sanctuary inferior, but the heavenly sanctuary, again, is superior. He says in verse 11, Christ came as a priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, not of this creation. So Jesus, again, is a greater priest. He operates in a greater sanctuary. And then it goes on to talk about the necessity of death. 
And it goes on, and we're going to read this verse in a minute, but he says that, that a testament or a covenant can never really come into play until someone dies. There has to be a death. How many of you have ever had a relative die, and you get together, and you read the will, but the will doesn't really go into place until that person dies. They have to die in order for the testament or the covenant to go into play. And the Bible says the same way. Why did the animals have to die? Why did Jesus have to die and shed his blood? Because it was his shed blood that literally made God's covenant with man active and, and usable, all right? So the necessity of death. I love how it says in verse 12 of chapter 9, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of the bulls and calves, even though that it temporarily made it possible for the people to be somewhat close to God, they could never, ever, it never took away the sin problem. But Jesus, one death, once and for all, took care of the sin problem, and for all, once and for all, we have 24-7 access into heaven because of that one sacrifice. Verse 16 of chapter 9, as we've just said, where there is a will and a testament involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. The New Living Translation says, so when someone leaves a will, it's necessary to prove the person who made it is dead. So there had to be a death in order for the testament or the covenant to be in play. All right, verse 22. According to the law, almost all things are purified or cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness. And so the Bible reminds us the necessity of that shed blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. We did the last song we sang under David, nothing but the blood. I want to tell you, I'm standing in the back, nothing but the blood. I want to tell you, our ability to go to God has nothing to do with our performance, has nothing to do with what church we go to or what country we live in. The only reason we have right to the access of God is the blood of Jesus. And it's sad that some denominations are taking out every song that talks about blood because they say, oh, we just don't want to sing about blood. But it is the shed blood that paid the price that gave us the possibility of coming into God's presence. There really is nothing but the blood. So number four in the book of Hebrews chapter nine, he says not only is he operate in a superior sanctuary, but again, his death, his sacrifice was superior. Notice what it says in verse 24. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. How, how cool is this? The high priest went into the presence of God once a year to represent the people. Our high priest, Christ, after he died and ascended into heaven, says now he appears before the Father on our behalf. So day and night, our high priest is appearing to God. So here we find the gospel. Up on the top left, the necessity of Christ dying on the cross. The Bible says he died and was buried. They put a stone over the tomb. Three days later, on the bottom right, he rose from the grave, and he's ascended into heaven, the true tabernacle. That's the message of Hebrews, that he is a superior high priest with a superior sacrifice, and he operates in a superior sanctuary. We have a lot to be thankful for as believers. Goes on to say in verse 25, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, 
For then he would have to have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I want you to get that last phrase, he's come to put away sin. The very thing in the Old Testament that always kept people at a distance, he took care of the sin problem, and what was not possible under the Old Covenant is possible under the New Covenant because of his death, we have the ability to go into God's presence. Pretty, pretty amazing. By the way, I love where it says to put away sin. Think about John the Baptist. Remember in John chapter 1, when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming the first time? In, in verse 29, I believe it is, John 1, John says to his disciples, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He took care of the sin problem. Two slides, again, to summarize, same two slides we showed last week. Under the Old Covenant, the sin problem always kept people at a distance. And again, it wasn't because God didn't want to be with them, but the sin problem was never taken care of, so men were always at a distance. Even though there were hundreds and thousands of sacrifices, it never took care of the sin problem. So again, there was no access to God. But under the New Covenant... That one sacrifice forever. The Bible says that he bore our sins in his body on that tree. That he literally became sin for us so that we could experience the righteousness of God. And so his death, when he died and was buried, took care of the sin problem once and for all. The Bible says that when he died, the veil in the temple that separated man from God was torn from top to bottom. And for once and for all, access to God was accessible to all of us. And so I love how the Bible says in Hebrews 7, Jesus always lives to make intercession. For the last 2,000 years, our high priest has been in the throne room of heaven in the real sanctuary, and he ever lives to intercede on our behalf. That's why the writer says, as we mentioned last week, Hebrews 4, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We are so privileged. We are so blessed to live under the new covenant. And the writer's saying, why in the world would you ever go back to a system where you could never experience the presence of God? I want to tell you, we are so blessed. I mean, I can only imagine what the people, the children of Israel would have thought if they would have said one day, there's coming a day after the sacrifice of the Messiah, there's coming a day that all of us can go into God's presence. That just seems so foreign to them. But one day we're going to tabernacle with God forever. I love how the Bible says in John 1:14, the word became flesh and, and tabernacled among us. God wanted to tabernacle with the children of Israel, and the only way he could do it was through that tent, but it was always at a distance. But when Jesus came, the, I love again how the Bible says he came down to tabernacle among us. He wanted to live among us. You say, is there anything better than Jesus walking side by side? That's pretty amazing. But after he died and rose again, he said, I'm sending my spirit and I'm going to tabernacle inside of your earth suit. That's crazy. To think that God no longer dwells in buildings made with hands, but this is the temple of God. I want to ask you all to stand. I think every week that I've, I've preached on Hebrews, I have a little prayer. I cannot imagine anybody ever standing before God and saying, I did not know there was just one way. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to. I've had the privilege of doing a lot of funerals. And I always consider it a privilege. 
and so many people that did so much for the community. But the one most important thing is, did they know Jesus? Did they have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? And so I want to just say a simple prayer. And as we have the other, I just want everybody to pray it out loud. And maybe everybody here has already accepted Christ into your life. But maybe there's one person that's not 100% sure if you were to die today, that you would be welcomed into the presence of heaven because you've accepted that sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross and that your sins are forever taken away. So would you pray with me? Everybody pray out loud. Dear Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for coming down to earth, taking on an earth suit, feeling our pain and dying on the cross for my sin. I ask you to forgive me and I ask you to come into my life as Lord and Savior. From this day forward, my life belongs to you. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer for the very first time, I just want to tell you, this is the greatest day of your life. That your sins forever are taken care of and that one day you'll be welcomed into the presence of God, not based on your life, but based on you accepting that sacrifice. I appreciate you guys being here. I hope that as we go through this week, I just pray as God filled the tabernacle back in Genesis 40, that God would fill each of us with his spirit. Can we take a moment as David plays softly, and would you just pray and ask God to fill you with his spirit? May that glory that filled the tabernacle fill each vessel that's here today. I hope before you go to bed tonight, you'll take a moment and reread Hebrews 9. I don't hardly ever say this, but if you get a chance, go online and just re-listen to the message. There's far more than we ever covered today. Would you let God speak to you about what's available to you as a believer? Hebrews is one of the most amazing books of the Bible, so relevant for today. And hopefully it's an encouragement to you, no matter what you're facing, Keep your eyes on Jesus and to take advantage of the excess that you have to God every day, 24-7.